I'd like you to turn to 1 Timothy, if you would. I'm hoping to begin a series of messages from this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. This would be back in all... about 65 A.D., 64, 65 A.D. And in this letter he tells pastors and people there in Ephesus how they should conduct themselves in the church. So we can take the things in this letter and bring them up to the 21st century and apply them to our little group here and various situations we might find ourselves in. So... Um, today, I think we'll only be able to give somewhat of an introduction to the setting of the letter, look at Timothy's life in particular, and then examine the first six verses. So, why don't we read those first six verses? First Timothy, chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion. kind of cutting a sentence up there, but we won't be able to get any further than that, so uh, that's as far as we'll read this morning. Well, just a few words by way of introduction then. This letter, along with Second Timothy and Titus, are sometimes called the pastoral epistles. And they get that name because they're letters, epistles, which dealt with the pastoral care and organization of the flock of God. Um, it was really, it's a personal letter. It was sent to Timothy. And he was to remain on there in Ephesus to try to set things in order that needed to be taken care of. And of course, this is, the, this is a foundational ch- time for the early church. Things are just starting to come together as far as how a church should function. And Paul's instructing his younger understudy, you might call him, Timothy, uh, in some of the particulars of how things should be done. Now, we shouldn't get the idea, though, that this is just meant for pastors only. I mean, uh, obviously, as you're reading through here, you'll see that the qualifications for elders are in here, qualifications for deacons, a lot of, uh, you know, particular things related to the pastorate. But it's for all of us because it teaches us how a church should function. And so um, that's what we need to keep in mind. This is not just for pastors, but for all of us here. He's dealing with various problems that uh, he was aware of there at Ephesus and also with 
just many practical teachings related to church life. So I think the real, real essence of the letter can be summed up if you turn to chapter 3, and we'll read verse 14 and 15. 1 Timothy 3, 4, uh, 14. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. So he said, I'm writing so that you know, would know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, the church of the living God. So if we want to know how to conduct ourselves in church as a group of Christians, especially corporately as we gather together, this letter should be one good place to look. Um, what I'd like to do is just take a little time here to briefly look at this young man, man Timothy. Young, I say, don't know for sure how old he was, probably early 20s. Uh, and this is who the letter is written to. He was probably Paul's closest associate and friend and was certainly a remarkable young man. Paul names him some six, in some 16 passages in his letters. And it seems that Paul had a special fond affection for him. As you see, we read here in verse 2, Timothy, my true child in the faith. If you skip over to 2 Timothy, just real quickly, in the introduction to 2 Timothy, in verse 2, to Timothy, my beloved son. So you just have a feel for that relationship that he had. It was like a father and son spiritually to one another. Um, it's kind of significant to note. Uh, when I read this, I thought, well, that is kind of amazing. Timothy is the only person to have two New Testament letters addressed particularly to him. I mean, this is a remarkable guy. Two letters sent to him end, end up in the New Testament. So we can piece together some of the information concerning his background from various places in the New Testament. He had a Greek father who probably was not a Christian. You can look this up sometime in Acts 16, verses 1 through 3. So a Greek father who probably was not a Christian. His mother was a Christian, a Jewish lady who had become a Christian. And so he had, he had had a godly upbringing by way of his mother. Not just his mother, we also learned that it was his grandmother and mother that had taught him the scriptures. Why don't we turn to that real quick in Second Timothy? These just gives you these verses give us a little feel for the the person that uh, this letter was written to. Second Timothy. Well, start with uh, let's see here, verse five, chapter one, verse five. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am sure it is in you as well. So there, here was a godly grandmother and a godly mother that had brought this young man up. And then if you turn to chapter 3, verse 14, Paul's talking to Timothy here. He says, You, however, <clears throat> you, however continue... In the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which were able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. 
So from childhood, he was being taught the scriptures. And I'm sure that was by his grandmother and his mother. So, as we said, Paul considered this young man his close associate, his beloved son, his true child in the faith. And another place Paul tells that Timothy served him in the furtherance of the gospel like a child served his father. Paul said that about Timothy. He served me like a child served his father. That's in Philippians 2.22. Timothy was not necessarily converted under Paul's ministry, but he certainly was brought into the leadership position in the early church by way of Paul's ministry. Throughout the New Testament letters, we find Timothy at Paul's side or being sent out by Paul on some missionary task. He was a faithful minister of the word, an opposer of false doctrine, an evangelist, a fellow sufferer in Christ's call, cause, and in fact, he was even called an apostle. At one, It's kind of a, using that word in a wider sense, but Paul actually includes him as an apostle along with himself. So, what the situation was here that after they had ministered together for a while in Ephesus, Paul left for Macedonia and urged Timothy to remain on in Ephesus to minister to that young church which was being established there. It seems from the account, it's obvious from the account actually, that it was hard going and Timothy would have liked to maybe be reassigned to some other situation. Instead of being reassigned, Paul was re-urging him to stick with it and press on. I think that's the, uh, the sense we should get there from verse 3 of chapter 1. As I urged you upon my departure. He said, just like I urged you back when I left, I'm urging you again right now in this letter. Stick with it. Press on. Deal with the problems that are there. Uh, you see some of the feel for this again in chapter 1, verse 18. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. So he's saying, press on, fight the fight there uh, at Ephesus. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 13. Paul does this constantly throughout this letter. 4.13. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture and exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed upon you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands of the presbytery, that is, the elders. Take pains in these things, be absorbed in them so that your progress may be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. See, he's exhorting him. Keep with it. Keep with it. Use the gifts that God has given you. Don't give up. And then chapter 6, verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So, Paul was not about to let Timothy skirt the problems there. He wanted him to face them head on and 
to deal with things as they came, came up. As I think about this young man, Timothy, I think there's many things that should encourage us as we seek to follow Christ. For instance, it seemed that he was a somewhat timid, reserved person, and some of us might be a little bit like that. Uh, he was quite a different person than Paul. It's obvious. Uh, in fact, Paul tells him six times in these two letters to be strong and unafraid of the testimony of the Lord. Now, why would Paul have to do that? Because Timothy had a little tendency to be a little bit timid, a little bit fearful. So he needed, he needed this repeated exhortation, I think. And he did prove to be strong and courageous. If church history is accurate, he died a martyr there in Ephesus. He was stoned to death for standing up against the idolatry of the pagan goddess, uh, the, the paganism there related to Diana or Artemis is another name for that false god they worshipped there in Ephesus. So he stuck with it, and uh, church history tells us he was martyred right there in Ephesus. So God can take timid souls and make them strong in spirit. I think that's a good thing to remember. Uh, Timothy also had frequent ailments. You see that? Let's turn to 1 Timothy 5.23. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. We must add stomach problems and frequent ailments. So... um, That should encourage anyone who seeks to serve Christ in the midst of bodily affliction. Timothy was in that category. Also, Timothy can be an encouragement for us. Uh, Well, for some of us that are still young. (laughs) I gave a series of messages out of this uh, section a long time back. And when in, in my notes... I had some of us who are young, and I can't do that anymore. (laughs) Oh, well. Uh, Paul told Timothy, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. So even as a young person, your desire should be that No one would look down on that youthfulness just because they see you pressing on in areas of love and conduct, faith, purity, being an example of those who believe. So, again, I would say that uh, Timothy was unlike Paul in many ways. Paul was old at the time of this letter. Timothy was young. Paul seemed to be a born leader. He was aggressive, energetic, had what it appears to me anyway, almost an iron constitution. If you read the stuff that he went through, beaten and stoned and whipped and shipwrecked and all that type of thing. Uh, Timothy wasn't like that. He had frequent ailments. But God sovereignly put them together to accomplish his good purposes in the early church. So let me just point out a few more lessons I think we can learn from what we looked at here concerning Timothy. First of all, 
God can take people as different as Paul and Timothy and bond them together in Christian love and service. Christian fellowship does not ultimately consist in similar personalities, disposition, age, or health. Common faith in the basic truths of the gospel and common devotion to Christ is what really matters. So you take a Paul and a Timothy and they can work together. Next, we see from some of Paul's exhortations to Timothy that it is possible for us as Christians to actually neglect the spiritual gifts God has given us. He, he says, he tells him a number of times, don't neglect those spiritual gifts. Well, if that's because it's possible to neglect those things. We need to be careful about that. That's, I don't think we read this one yet. Second uh, Timothy chapter 1. Verse 16. I must have, let's see. Yeah, verse 6. For this reason I remind you, kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. So, again, he's you know, saying stir up those gifts, kindle again those gifts that God has given you. Uh, just like unused muscle wastes away, so unused gifts can diminish. So it's, a, it's something for all of us to consider here. We must rouse ourselves and rouse others to use their God-given gifts in situations that God's put us in. We need to be exhorted, uh, exhort ourselves sometimes and exhort one another along those lines. Uh, and even in this area of exhortations, I think we can learn something. And that is that effective exhortation is best given in the context of encouragement and love. The people that we will have the most effect on will be those who know that we truly care for them. Paul said some pretty strong things to Timothy in these letters. I mean, if you if you just kind of let them sink in the way some of the things were said, you would have thought, boy, that's pretty, pretty heavy duty. But I believe that Timothy was not hurt or offended because he knew how much Paul appreciated him and cared for him. Though Paul could have simply exerted his apostolic authority, he blended that authority together with a tender love for Timothy and consequently, Timothy was truly encouraged to press on in this difficult situation. Another area that I think we can learn relates, related to Timothy's life has to do with the influence of a godly mother. Even a mother in a mixed marriage, and by mixed marriage I mean a marriage of a believer and a non-believer. We see the effect that Timothy's mother had upon his life, the long-term effect. Long-term effect historically. Just think of how church history has changed because of Timothy. As you read through church history, you see examples of where the sincere faith of a mother has changed the course of history. Uh, Augustine, David Livingston, D.L. Moody, 
would be some examples. I just, I think I'll take a moment here if I can pull this up. I didn't, I just read this last night and I didn't have time to incorporate it in my notes. So I'm going to try to see if I can. This is an, this is the account of D.L. Moody speaking at his mother's funeral. And he just tells what a tremendous effect she had on his life and the life of his siblings. Um, he tells how they just wanted to be around her because they knew how much she loved them. She had seven boys and two girls, and her husband died young. She was a widow for 54 years raising those children. When her husband died, he left. He was bankrupt. So the creditors were right there to take most of what they had. And yet, they couldn't take away that mother's love for her children. And I just wanted to read this one part here. Uh, it says, what more can I say? I want to give you one verse, her creed. Her creed was very short. Do you know what it was? I'll tell you what it was. When, in, when everything went against her, this was what she would say. My trust is in God. My trust is in God. And when the neighbors would come in and tell her to bind out her children, I think that means she needed to let somebody else raise all these kids. She's got seven boys and two girls with no money would tell her to bind out her children, she would say, not as long as I have these two hands. Well, they would say, you know, you know one woman can't bring up seven boys. They'll turn up in jail or with a rope around their necks. She toiled on, and none of us went to jail, and none of us had a rope around our necks. And if everyone had a mother like that mother, if the world was mothered by the kind of mothers, by this kind of mothers, there wouldn't be any use for jails. <laughs> so anyway, I'm just trying to emphasize here the influence that a, a godly mother can have on the children. Spurgeon said, I cannot tell you how much I owe to the solemn word of my good mother, another famous evangelist. Only God himself fully appreciates the influence of a Christian mother in the molding of the character of her children. So that's just, uh, I think, something we can glean from the information here about Timothy. And I would just say this to the children here. This account of Timothy should show you the great privilege you have if you have a Christian mother. It's a wonderful thing. By the loving training she gives you, by the living the Christian life before you, your mom is giving you a foundation that will stand through time and eternity if you will put your trust in Christ. Listen to what she says. Honor her. I know it doesn't seem like this now, children, but the time that you have with your mom 
is very short. So, love your mother before your time with her is over. Make sure she knows you appreciate what she does for you. Well, those are some thoughts then from Timothy's life. But I want to go on now and look at verses 3, 4, and 5, chapter 1. Let's just read these again. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, for some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussions." So one of the primary reasons that Paul was encouraging Timothy to remain there at Ephesus was because Timothy needed to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. There's a negative part to the, uh, his ministry, instruct them not to do this, but then there was a very positive part too. Uh, people were being influenced by myths and endless genealogies. These were apparently... Jewish individuals who were seeking to be teachers in the early church but were going off track because of misunderstanding and misusing the Old Testament scriptures. In uh, Titus, Paul specifically mentions Jewish myths. Now, he's not talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about things that were being added to the Old Testament by uh, teachers and in certain commentaries. We know that there were interpretations and commentaries that had arisen among the Jewish people concerning the Old Testament, which were a mixture of truth and error, because they were mixing in some of these uh, fables and human traditions, man-made speculations, combining that with biblical truth from from the scriptures. Also, some of these commentaries and traditions were noted for their lengthy debates about dates and definitions and find find distinctions about fanciful things in the law. So that's there was this undercurrent of, of things that had been added to the Old Testament that these Jewish teachers put a big emphasis on. This type of teaching was something that would distract the people from the real goal and purpose of the gospel. So Paul was telling Timothy that he must put a stop to such teachers and teaching. Such things would not further the administration of God, which is by faith. He was telling Timothy, it's not the right time for you to leave. You need to stay there because you need to set things in order. Things were being disrupted here. The gifts that God had given Timothy were needed in that situation, and he needed to steer the church in the right direction. So what was the right direction? That's the positive side. God clearly, or Paul clearly tells him in verse 5, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 
if a church stay, strays away from these things, it's going off course. If, you, if you're not emphasizing, zeroing in on what Paul says in verse 5, you can be sure you're going off, off course. It doesn't matter how prominent, how popular things may seem. It's, if, you, if you're not sticking with those things, you're going off into things that are going to be fruitless and futile. You know, novelty and uh, speculations and sensational uh, type stories sells well. Those type of things will sell your books and you can gain a following that way, but you can't grow God's people that way. And this is what Paul's saying. Some of these things are very enticing. They're very, uh, you know, um, the type of thing that you think, well, that nobody's heard that before. I like that, you know. But they're not going to help you grow. So let's examine briefly this tremendous summary of what the Christian life and ministry is all about and what the church any church, but will take us in particular, should be aiming at. Another way of stating this is what is the goal of the gospel in the lives of those who embrace it? What should the gospel be producing in the church? And Paul's answer, I believe, is really one word, and that word is love. The gospel should be producing, the church should be producing in the people, the ministry should be producing love. Love for God, love for others. A love that comes from a pure heart, a love that comes from a good conscience, a love that comes from a sincere faith. God's goal for the gospel in our lives is much more than just keeping us out of hell. I mean, a lot of times we we put an emphasis there, and it's not wrong that we realize that the gospel does do that, but... The gospel is to fit us for heaven. It's not just to keep us out of hell. It's to fit us from heaven. And heaven, as Jonathan Edwards said, is a, is a world of love. So if you're going to be fit for heaven, you better start learning to love because that's what, that's what heaven is. It's a world of love. The goal of the gospel, the goal of gospel preaching and teaching and living is to make us fit to live with God, the God who is love, to live with God forever. How is this goal of love brought about? Well, it's brought about by the power of God. But as God works in a person's life, the person is graciously, first of all, given a new heart, a purified heart a heart that is set upon doing the will of God. That's what the idea of being pure. You don't have all different kinds of things out there anymore. You've got your heart has been made new and it's set on doing the will of God. And that person with a purified heart is given a good conscience, one that's not defiled or guilty. It's been cleaned. The record's been cleaned for you, cleared of wrongdoing. And that person with a purified heart and a clear conscience is given a faith that's not hypocritical or mere play acting. It's a sincere faith. 
And those three things working together will produce, increasingly produce, love. That's what we should be seeing. This is what Paul's telling Timothy. One commentator described this gospel-produced love like this. This is a gospel-produced love. It's produced by the gospel, you see. We don't bring it about ourselves. We can't work this up ourselves. But the gospel produces it in our lives through the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, anyway, he said this gospel-produced love, he described it like this. This love may be described as a personal delight in God a grateful outgoing of the entire personality to him, a deep yearning for the prosperity of his redeemed. In other words, it goes toward God and it goes towards others. A deep yearning for the prosperity of his redeemed and an earnest desire for the temporal and eternal welfare of his creatures. But then I like this. After that he says, By far, however, far better, he says, however, is Paul's own description of love in 1 Corinthians 13. He said, I I just gave you mine, but Paul, (laughs) Paul does a lot better. So let's turn to that because we're talking about what we should be about, and what we should be about is love. And I know we're all familiar with this, but this is the, this is what we're, this is the goal. This is where we should be heading more and more every day as a church and as individuals. So we'll just read these eight verses. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Now you see what he's doing here? He's saying all the, you can have all this stuff going on in the church. And if you don't have love, it doesn't mean anything. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Now, he tells us the aspects of love. Love is patient. Are you working on that by the grace of God? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Love, Love never gives up. Love keeps on. So if that's what love is, and love is the goal of our instruction, then we would do well to examine ourselves often in relationship to these characteristics. It wouldn't hurt us to read that section every time we meet together. If we're not seeing movement in that direction in our lives, we should go back and ask ourselves, do I have a purified heart? Has God given me a new heart? Do I have a good conscience? 
Or have I defi am I defiling my conscience here somewhere? That's certainly going to clog the channels for love to flow from our lives. Do I have a sincere faith? Or is there still some hypocrisy lingering there in my life? These three gracious gifts working together will more and more bring forth that precious jewel of love that should be our goal. As a church, we should ask, is spirit-imparted love for God and others really the emphasis of our teaching and our gathering together? Or are we veering off into fruitless discussions which do not, do not further the administration of God through faith? Is my life being more and more readied to be a part of that world of love that God has foreordained for his people. I mean, we're to be fitting ourselves. We're to be moving in the direction so that we do fit into heaven. If the instruction and teaching we receive does not have as its goal Christ-like love, it's really not God's instruction. The final purpose of all that we do and say as a church must be that we love God and man. I'll just read that again. It, doesn't, it shouldn't seem too profound, but sometimes we get off into so many other things and forget. The final purpose of all that we do and say as a church must be that we may love God and man. You know, God has not given us his word to make us brilliant theologians or to give us more material for debate and discussion. His revelation in the scriptures and in Christ is given, a, given to us that we might be more Christ-like, more loving, more prepared for eternity with him. So I want to close here with uh, a quote from a book called The Imitation of Christ. I don't know if the title is all that good. And this, uh, the writer, this is back in the 14th or 15th century. Thomas Akempis was this man's name. But I, I like this quote. I've had it for a long time just as something to meditate on. He says this, what does it avail to discourse profoundly of the Trinity if you are void of humility and thereby displeasing to the Trinity? You might be, be, be able to expound for hours on the, all the wonderful aspects of the Trinity, but if you do that in a manner that's not humble, if it's proud, if you're showing for, forth your knowledge of the Trinity, uh, it may be very displeasing to the Trinity. Surely profound words do not make a man holy, but a virtuous life makes him dear to God. I would rather feel contrition than to know the definition thereof. If you know the whole Bible by heart and all the sayings of all the philosophers, what would that profit 
without love. Truly, when the day of judgment comes, we shall not be examined as to what we have read, but what we have done. Not how well we have spoken, but how we have lived. Well, I think just to kind of balance that out, we need to realize that we're not saved because we're so loving. That's not the reason we're saved. We're saved because God is so loving. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Nevertheless, when the God of love imparts his own life to our hearts, we will increasingly become loving. The more we know him, the more loving we'll be because he's God of love. Love is the fulfillment of the law as well as the essence of the gospel. Just read a little section from First John here and I'll be done. Beloved. Right there. That's the way we view one another. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God is manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, We ought to love one another. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. It's a good... It's a good memory verse, children. If you're not working on a memory verse right now, that's a really good one because Paul's just summarizing. This is what it's all about, folks. This is what it's all about. Um, Let's pray.